Section six of Chapter twenty of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter twenty. Section six. The truth was that the change which the revolution had made in the situation of the House of Commons had made another change necessary, and that other change had not yet taken place. There was parliamentary government, but there was no ministry, and without a ministry the working of a parliamentary government such as ours must always be unsteady and unsafe. It is essential to our liberties that the House of Commons should exercise a control over all the departments of the executive administration and yet it is evident that a crowd of five or six hundred people even if they were intellectually much above the average of the members of the best parliament even if every one of them was a burley or a sully would be unfit for executive functions it has been truly said that every large collection of human beings however well educated has a strong tendency to become a mob and a country of which the supreme executive council is a mob is surely in a perilous situation Happily, a way has been found out in which the House of Commons can exercise a paramount influence over the executive government without assuming functions such as can never be well discharged by a body so numerous and so variously composed. An institution which did not exist in the times of the Plantagenets, of the Tudors, or of the Stuarts, an institution not known to the law, an institution not mentioned in any statute, an institution of which such writers as Delhomme and Blackstone take no notice, began to exist a few years after the Revolution, grew rapidly into importance, became firmly established, and is now almost as essential a part of our polity as the Parliament itself. This institution is the Ministry. The Ministry is, in fact, a committee of leading members of the two Houses. It is nominated by the Crown, but it consists exclusively of statesmen whose opinions on the pressing questions of the time agree, in the main, with the opinions of the majority of the House of Commons. Among the members of this committee are distributed the great departments of the administration. Each minister conducts the ordinary business of his own office without reference to his colleagues. But the most important business of every office, and especially such business as is likely to be the subject of discussion in Parliament, is brought under the consideration of the whole ministry in parliament the ministers are bound to act as one man on all questions relating to the executive government if one of them dissents from the rest on a question too important to admit of compromise it is his duty to retire while the ministers retain the confidence of the parliamentary majority that majority supports them against opposition and rejects every motion which reflects on them or is likely to embarrass them if they forfeit that confidence if the parliamentary majority is dissatisfied with the way in which patronage is distributed with the way in which the prerogative of mercy is used with the conduct of foreign affairs with the conduct of a war the remedy is simple it is not necessary that the commons should take on themselves the business of administration that they should request the crown to make this man a bishop and that man a judge to pardon one criminal and to execute another to negotiate a treaty on a particular basis, or to send an expedition to a particular place. They have merely to declare that they have ceased to trust the ministry, and to ask for a ministry which they can trust. It is by means of ministries thus constituted, and thus changed, 
that the English government has long been conducted in general conformity with the deliberate sense of the House of Commons, and yet has been wonderfully free from the vices which are characteristic of governments administered by large, tumultuous, and divided assemblies. A few distinguished persons, agreeing in their general opinions, are the confidential advisers at once of the sovereign and of the estates of the realm. In the closet they speak with the authority of men who stand high in the esteem of the representatives of the people. In Parliament they speak with the authority of men versed in great affairs, and acquainted with all the secrets of the state. Thus the cabinet has something of the popular character of a representative body, and the representative body has something of the gravity of a cabinet. Sometimes the state of parties is such that no set of men who can be brought together possesses the full confidence and steady support of a majority of the House of Commons. When this is the case, there must be a weak ministry, and there will probably be a rapid succession of weak ministries. At such times the House of Commons never fails to get into a state which no person friendly to representative government can contemplate without uneasiness, into a state which may enable us to form some faint notion of the state of that house during the earlier years of the reign of William. The notion is indeed but faint, for the weakest ministry has great power as a regulator of parliamentary proceedings, and in the earlier years of the reign of William there was no ministry at all. No writer has yet attempted to trace the progress of this institution, an institution indispensable to the harmonious working of our other institutions. The first ministry was the work, partly of mere chance and partly of wisdom, not, however, of that highest wisdom which is conversant with great principles of political philosophy, but of that lower wisdom which meets daily exigencies by daily expedience. Neither William, nor the most enlightened of his advisers, fully understood the nature and importance of that noiseless revolution, for it was no less, which began about the close of 1693, and was completed about the close of 1696. But every body could perceive that, at the close of 1693, the chief offices in the government were distributed not unequally between the two great parties, that the men who held those offices were perpetually caballing against each other, haranguing against each other moving votes of censure on each other, exhibiting articles of impeachment against each other, and that the temper of the House of Commons was wild, ungovernable, and uncertain. Everybody could perceive that at the close of 1696 all the principal servants of the Crown were Whigs, closely bound together by public and private ties, and prompt to defend one another against every attack, and that the majority of the House of Commons was arrayed in good order under those leaders, and had learned to move, like one man, at the word of command. The history of the period of transition and of the steps by which the change was effected is in a high degree curious and interesting. The statesmen who had the chief share in forming the first English ministry had once been but too well known, but had long hidden himself from the public gaze, and had but recently emerged from the obscurity in which it had been expected that he would pass the remains of an ignominious and disastrous life. During the period of general terror and confusion which followed the flight of James, Sunderland had disappeared. It was high time, for of all the agents of the fallen government he was, with the single exception of Jeffreys, the most odious to the nation. Few knew that Sunderland's voice had in secret been given against the spoliation of Magdalen College and the prosecution of the bishops, but all knew that he had signed numerous instruments dispensing with statutes, that he had sat in the High Commission that he had turned or pretended to turn papist, 
that he had, a few days after his apostasy, appeared in Westminster Hall as a witness against the oppressed fathers of the church. He had indeed atoned for many crimes by one crime baser than all the rest. As soon as he had reason to believe that the day of deliverance and retribution was at hand, he had, by a most dexterous and seasonable treason, earned his pardon. During the three months which preceded the arrival of the Dutch armament in Torbay, he had rendered to the cause of liberty and of the Protestant religion services of which it is difficult to overrate either the wickedness or the utility. To him chiefly it was owing that, at the most critical moment in our history, a French army was not menacing the Batavian frontier, and a French fleet hovering about the English coast. William could not, without staining his own honour, refuse to protect one whom he had not scrupled to employ. Yet it was no easy task, even for William, to save that guilty head from the first outbreak of public fury. For even those extreme politicians of both sides who agreed in nothing else agreed in calling for vengeance on the renegade. The Whigs hated him as the vilest of the slaves by whom the late government had been served, and the Jacobites as the vilest of the traitors by whom it had been overthrown. Had he remained in England, he would probably have died by the hand of the executioner, if indeed the executioner had not been anticipated by the populace. But in Holland, a political refugee, favoured by the stadtholder, might hope to live unmolested. To Holland, Sunderland fled, disguised, it is said, as a woman, and his wife accompanied him. At Rotterdam, a town devoted to the House of Orange, he thought himself secure. But the magistrates were not in all the secrets of the prince, and were assured by some busy Englishman that his highness would be delighted to hear of the arrest of the popish dog, the Judas, whose appearance on Tower Hill was impatiently expected by all London. Sunderland was thrown into prison, and remained there till an order for his release arrived from Whitehall. He then proceeded to Amsterdam, and there changed his religion again. His second apostasy edified his wife as much as his first apostasy had edified his master. The countess wrote to assure her pious friends in England that her poor dear lord's heart had at last been really touched by divine grace, and that, in spite of all her afflictions, she was comforted by seeing him so true a convert. We may, however, without any violation of Christian charity, suspect that he was still the same false, callous Sunderland who, a few months before, had made Bonrepaux shudder by denying the existence of a god, and had, at the same time, won the heart of James by pretending to believe in transubstantiation. In a short time the banished man put forth an apology for his conduct. This apology, when examined, will be found to amount merely to a confession that he had committed one series of crimes in order to gain James's favour, and another series in order to avoid being involved in James's ruin. The writer concluded by announcing his intention to pass all the rest of his life in penitence and prayer. He soon retired from Amsterdam to Utrecht, and at Utrecht made himself conspicuous by his regular and devout attendance on the ministrations of Huguenot preachers. If his letters and those of his wife were to be trusted, he had done forever with ambition. He longed indeed to be permitted to return from exile, not that he might again enjoy and dispense the favours of the crown, not that his antechambers might again be filled by the daily swarm of suitors, but he might see again the turf, the trees, and the family pictures of his country seat. His only wish was to be suffered to end his troubled life at Althorpe, and he would be content to forfeit his head if ever he went beyond the palings of his park. While the House of Commons, which had been elected during the vacancy of the throne, was busily engaged in the work of proscription, he could not venture to show himself in England. 
but when that assembly had ceased to exist, he thought himself safe. He returned a few days after the act of grace had been laid on the table of the lords. From the benefit of that act he was by name excluded, but he well knew that he had now nothing to fear. He went privately to Kensington, was admitted into the closet, had an audience which lasted two hours, and then retired to his country house. During many months he led a secluded life, and had no residence in London. Once in the spring of 1692, to the great astonishment of the public, he showed his face in the circle at court, and was graciously received. He seems to have been afraid that he might, on his reappearance in Parliament, receive some marked affront. He therefore, very prudently, stole down to Westminster in the dead time of the year, on a day to which the houses stood adjourned by the royal command, and on which they met merely for the purpose of adjourning again. Sunderland had just time to present himself, to take the oaths, to sign the declaration against transubstantiation, and to resume his seat. None of the few peers who were present had an opportunity of making any remark. It was not till the year 1692 that he began to attend regularly. He was silent, but silent he had always been in large assemblies, even when he was at the zenith of power. His talents were not those of a public speaker. The art in which he surpassed all men was the art of whispering. His tact, his quick eye for the foibles of individuals, his caressing manners, his power of insinuation, and, above all, his apparent frankness, made him irresistible in private conversation. By means of these qualities he had governed James, and now aspired to govern William. To govern William, indeed, was not easy, but Sunderland succeeded in obtaining such a measure of favour and influence as excited much surprise and some indignation. In truth, scarcely any mind was strong enough to resist the witchery of his talk and of his manners. Every man is prone to believe in the gratitude and attachment even of the most worthless persons, on whom he has conferred great benefits. It can therefore hardly be thought strange that the most skilful of all flatterers should have been heard with favour, when he, with every outward sign of strong emotion, implored permission to dedicate all his faculties to the service of the generous protector to whom he owed property, liberty, life. It is not necessary, however, to suppose that the king was deceived. He may have thought, with good reason, that though little confidence could be placed in Sunderland's professions, much confidence might be placed in Sunderland's situation, and the truth is that Sunderland proved, on the whole, a more faithful servant than a much less depraved man might have been. He did indeed make, in profound secrecy, some timid overtures towards a reconciliation with James. But it may be confidently affirmed that, even had those overtures been graciously received, and they appear to have been received very ungraciously, the twice-turned renegade would never have rendered any real service to the Jacobite cause. He well knew that he had done that which at St. Germain's must be regarded as inexpiable. It was not merely that he had been treacherous and ungrateful. Marlborough had been as treacherous and ungrateful, and Marlborough had been pardoned, but Marlborough had not been guilty of the impious hypocrisy of counterfeiting the signs of conversion. Marlborough had not pretended to be convinced by the arguments of the Jesuits, to be touched by divine grace, to pine for union with the only true church. Marlborough had not, when popery was in the ascendant, crossed himself, shrived himself, done penance, taken the communion in one kind, and, as soon as a turn of fortune came, apostatized back again, and proclaimed to all the world that, when he knelt at the confessional and received the host, he was merely laughing at the king and the priests. 
The crime of Sunderland was one which could never be forgiven by James, and a crime which could never be forgiven by James was, in some sense, a recommendation to William. The court, nay the council, was full of men who might hope to prosper if the banished king were restored. But Sunderland had left himself no retreat. He had broken down all the bridges behind him. He had been so false to one side that he must of necessity be true to the other. That he was, in the main, true to the government which now protected him, there is no reason to doubt, and, being true, he could not but be useful. He was, in some respects, eminently qualified to be at that time an adviser of the crown. He had exactly the talents and the knowledge which William wanted. The two together would have made up a consummate statesman. The master was capable of forming and executing large designs, but was negligent of those small arts in which the servant excelled. The master saw farther off than other men, but what was near no man saw so clearly as the servant. The master, though profoundly versed in the politics of the great community of nations, never thoroughly understood the politics of his own kingdom. The servant was perfectly well informed as to the temper and the organization of the English factions, and as to the strong and weak parts of the character of every Englishman of note. Early in 1693, it was rumored that Sunderland was consulted on all important questions relating to the internal administration of the realm, and the rumor became stronger when it was known that he had come up to London in the autumn before the meeting of Parliament, and that he had taken a large mansion near Whitehall. The coffee-house politicians were confident that he was about to hold some high office. As yet, however, he had the wisdom to be content with the reality of power, and to leave the show to others. His opinion was that, as long as the king tried to balance the two great parties against each other, and to divide his favor equally between them, both would think themselves ill-used, and neither would lend to the government that hearty and steady support which was now greatly needed. His majesty must make up his mind to give a marked preference to one or the other, and there were three weighty reasons for giving the preference to the Whigs. End of section 6